Hey there, welcome to Tiny Shifts. In a world where it can be too easy to be overwhelmed by pretty much everything, this podcast is about how the tiniest shifts in our everyday life can radiate out making big and meaningful changes in our world, nudging it to be a little bit more courageous, a little bit more joyful, and definitely more loving. I'm so grateful you're joining us on this our last episode of our series on fascism. And today we're diving into the reality of Christian nationalism white Christian nationalism in particular. Now, I didn't grow up Christian, but I did grow up culturally Christian in the sense that I grew up in a nation where the majority of people came from or practiced Christianity. And so I've always been attuned to the ways that, I mean, as best I could, that Christian dominance didn't totally fit the story of my family. I didn't quite understand why some people would get really upset, for example, when you said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, why there was a big fight to keep the Christ in Christmas or, you know, to not acknowledge the other religious and the other edit, to not acknowledge other faiths, holiday traditions, and that why that would seem as a threat, especially as this time as we're moving into the winter season where we see Hanukkah, we see Diwali just passed, we see Christmas, these major sacred holidays. The way people get really motivated by you know, unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud or really fears of illegal immigration, despite the fact that immigrants are necessary for our economy. You know, the reactionary emotionality of these issues comes from somewhere. And what we're going to explore today on the podcast is how that emotionality actually comes from a racial grievance or a racial experience, but it gets really clothed in the garment of Christian. So I'm not going to say much more of that. I'm not going to say much more of that, but we'll just dive right in. The line between a beach in Virginia in August of 1619, where the first enslaved persons arrived in what would become the United States, and the steps of the capital in D.C. on January 6, 2021, the line between these two dates may not at first seem obvious. But the line snakes its way through 401 years of history through Puritan New England as those settlers that Eleanor told us about wrestled with a theological quandary at the heart of their enterprise, which is what do we do with these indigenous peoples whose lands we intend to take for our own. Camps within the Puritan establishment debate, elimination, conversion, or coexistence, they wrestled with the question, what does it mean to be Christian and human in the face of the other? The line between these two dates runs through the construction of the American racial order in which white needed to mean free, where black was forced to mean enslaved, and red meant neither bound nor free but savage. Beginning to establish a clear racial hierarchy to enforce that was enforced through systems ranging from slavery to the modern system of mass incarceration. This line dodged bullets in the American Revolution and the War of 1812, where it witnessed the shift in identity of these settlers from an identification with a particular colony to being fervently American, where the stars and stripes became a symbol of freedom, became a symbol of a people united, well, a freedom for some, at least, 
certain people united. Maybe the line between these two days, 401 years apart, is clearest seen at the time of the Civil War where two different versions of American liberty came to an impasse leading to violence. It showed up surely as white Northerners refused to make good on their promises after the war when Reconstruction came to an end as the troops were pulled out of Dixie, forcing African Americans to trade slavery for sharecropping and Jim Crow. When you keep looking, the line shows up over and over again, weaving its way through the theological debates justifying manifest destiny that white American Christians not only are the chosen people, but their task is to be the new Jerusalem, the city on a hill, and expand that God-given mission to civilize an entire continent. You find this line tracing its way through the moral majority of the 20th century who cloaked themselves in family values to mask their true agenda opposition to racial integration in schools as they emptied the cities towards suburban white life. Conservative white evangelicals added their own flair to the story. Their overt white supremacy became clothed in colorblindness and racial dog whistles. We started to hear about welfare queens and urban issues. Shifting racism from a structural reality in people's minds to a personal problem. Oh, and also those same white conservative evangelicals also became, became completely and deeply transfixed on the notion of sexual sin. And where Christian morality became equated with sexual morality, suddenly sexual morality needed to be legislated and enforced. All of these moments building together an evolving and dangerous ideology. As Samuel Perry and Philip Gorski write in their book, The Flag and the Cross, the chaos of the Capitol insurrection on January 6, 2021, was bewildering for many, in part because there was a violent riot, but also a riot of images, a wooden cross and wooden gallows, Christian flags and Confederate flags. Jesus saves and don't tread on me banners, button-down shirts, but also bulletproof vests. But these confusing and similarly, seemingly contradictory symbols are part of an increasingly familiar ideology. What Philip Gorski and Samuel Perry name as white Christian nationalism. As I imagined giving this message, I thought I would be focusing on the theological underpinnings of Christian nationalism. How, for example, self-described born-again Christians who placed so much emphasis on morality could champion a philandering, arrogant, and cruel politician like Donald Trump. Or how maybe wearing a mask during a pandemic suddenly became an issue of religious freedom or why so many Christians would quote Romans 13 about being subject to governing authorities, but yet support an insurrection at the Capitol building. But as I dove into the research, I realized that the theological foundation of Christian nationalism isn't some new emerging evangelical theology. It's actually quite the contrary. White Christian nationalism is simply the distillation of American political and cultural attitudes about race, dominance, and destiny. Let's take a step back and define some of our terms. What is Christian nationalism? 
Well, on its face, Christian nationalism seeks to merge Christian and American identities, arguing that to be a good American, you must be Christian. Thus, Christian nationalism sees Christianity as needing to be privileged by the state. Christian nationalists agree with statements like, the founding documents of this nation were divinely inspired, or the success of the U.S. is part of God's plan, or the federal government should declare the U.S. a Christian nation. In surveys that have been really empirically done over the last 40 or so years, about 30% of Americans today can be classified as adherents or sympathizers to Christian nationalist ideas. But the reality of Christian nationalism is that its appeal and power has very little to do with Christianity, but rather with the deep story it tells white America about who they are and the problems this nation is facing right now. It is only Christian because the vast majority of those who believe this story identify it as such, and it's Christian because it draws on particular readings of the Bible, and because it draws on the Bible, the story sounds orthodox and traditional to many mainstream Christians. As Gorski and Perry write in The Flag and the Cross, this deep story is an idea from the sociologist R.L.I. Russell Hothschild. What makes deep stories stories is that they function like bare-bones movie scripts that includes a cast of heroes and villains and well-worn and familiar plots, the events that are supposed to happen. And like many classic scripts, they are made and remade with tweaked storylines and new leading men. What makes deep stories deep is that they have a deep root in our culture. Deep stories have been told and retold so many times across so many generations that they feel natural and true, even and perhaps especially when the story is more myth than history. More precisely, it is a mythological version of history. White Christian nationalism's deep story goes something like this, and I invite you to listen to those elements of fascist political method that we've been talking about this month. The story goes something like this. America was founded as a Christian nation by primarily white men who were traditional Christians who based this nation's founding on Christian principles. That the United States is blessed by God, which is why it has been so successful. And the nation has a special role to play in God's plan for humanity. But these blessings are threatened by cultural degradation from un-American influences, both inside and outside our borders. Now, who those un-American influences are changes generation to generation, decade to decade. I mean, for many years, it was, well, the communists. Now, at this point in the message, I ask people to think about who are the people that are targeted? Who are the groups that are cast as villains? And so, I just want you to think to yourself for a second, like, well, who are the groups that you see right now are targeted? Who are the groups that were in the past? We've seen the rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Arab and anti-Muslim sentiments in the last few months after the war between Hamas and Israel broke out. We've seen for the last year a moral panic about queer and trans people. And for years, there have been a, really an increase in rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric. Okay, I'm going to pass it back to myself. One of the most dangerous aspects of white Christian nationalist belief is that they sincerely believe that whites and Christians are the most persecuted group in America. 
This is a sincere belief, a viewpoint that is reinforced by an entire right-wing media echo chamber. I mean, consider the yearly tradition of drawing attention to the so-called war on Christmas in the right-wing media. There is, of course, no war on Christmas. You are free to practice Christmas. No one is going to jail. However, culturally, we are moving away from Christmas being the default winter holiday tradition. We are moving away from Christmas being culturally reinforced in every corporate, governmental, and other institutions of our society. And that decentering of Christianity in that way for white Christian nationalists seems like persecution, equating the loss of cultural power with persecution betrays the deepest fears within Christian nationalist beliefs, which is that of the demographic shift that is happening in America. For right now, the United States is becoming more and more non-Christian and more and more non-white. Somewhere in between 2041 and 2046, the United States will become majority minority, in which non-white people, well, white people will be in the minority. Somewhere between Somewhere around 2070, there will be more non-Christians in this country than Christians. And the idea of this demographic threat is essential to understand the underlying motivation behind Christian nationalism, because white Christians have been in control of this country from the beginning, economically, politically, and socially. And so this demographic with their demographic majority, with a good helping of disenfranchisement of women and racial minorities and their political opponents, of course, white Christians have been able to wield, to wield democracy to do their own bidding. And as white Christians approach minority status, we see them beginning to turn against democracy. In the most extreme cases, with appeals to direct authoritarianism, with approximately 12% of Americans reporting they support the idea of an authoritarian leader to keep these Christian values in society. White Christian nationalism defines the people that should participate in American democracy along racial, religious, and native birth lines. It is a form of ethno-nationalism. And rhetoric like we hear from Trump about the big lie be, of the big lie of stolen elections relies on the idea that if real people voted, Trump would have won. Leading to allegations of foreigners voting, of immigrants voting, and a ramping up of election integrity efforts that actually are just restricting people's access to the ballot. That was a lot. So I'm going to offer this summary. America is at once not a Christian nation and is also a deeply Christian nation. It is not a Christian nation in the sense that the American Revolution was not a theocratic one, that the separation of church and state is real, even if we debate and challenge exactly where those lines can be drawn. And while there is an American civic religion that is steeped in the waters of Christianity, there is no state church. And it is clear that the founders 
did not intend Christian hegemony. But it is also clear that the founders couldn't imagine a multiracial, multireligious, liberal democratic state like we are attempting to live in. And attempts by Christian nationalists to rewrite history to justify continued Christian control should be seen as a fraud in the same way that there are attempts to rewrite the nature of the Civil War or the impact of slavery or the genocide of indigenous peoples. America is a Christian nation in the sense that the reins of power and control have always been and continue to be held by white Christians. And so the question that arises as demographics shift, as white Christian majority status in this nation shifts, is how will white Christians respond when they can't count on democratic and state institutions to continue to prioritize them and their power? The strategy of historical revisionism, of rewriting this country's history to validate the ideas of white Christian dominance under the guise of this Christian values, is part of the strategy. In another way of saying that, white Christian nationalism is a convenient theological mask for the undercurrents of reactionary white racial resentment that will trade away liberal democracy for a Jim Crow 2.0 or continue to entrench America's road towards apartheid for non-white and non-Christian peoples. The fascist vision of white Christian nationalism is sneakily similar to our current reality, only more brutal and widespread. Police violence targeting minorities, immigrants, and dissenters, mass surveillance, mass incarceration, voter suppression to stop certain groups from going to the polls, gerrymandering to, co to concentrate power. Now, as a faith, as Unitarian Universalists, we are committed to a liberal, democratic, and pluralistic society and that's not just a political allegiance, but it's a theological one. If every person has a piece of the truth, then a democratic society is the only way for that belief to be lived out in society. And it can't be a theoretically democratic state. It needs to be one in which everyone has true access to democracy. This leads us as a faith or it necessitates a public faith for us to, for example, build coalitions potentially with groups and people that we don't agree with on everything if our common goal is to defend liberal democratic principles. And it also calls on us to invest heavily in the political power of those being targeted by Christian nationalism already. The way that Christian nationalists have been attacking reproductive health, the way they're attacking queer and trans people, communities of color, indigenous peoples and those who are incarcerated, we have to be willing to not give up any of these people. But those are the more outward and political dimensions. And while they are important, they are too easy for people like us, mostly non-Christians, but still privileged, to easily other Christian nationalism as not like us when the base impulse of Christian nationalism is deeply present across theological and political spectrums within white people. Because whiteness, along with other markers of being in the majority, being male, being straight, 
being cis. Well, if you have those markers, democracy has almost or usually gone somewhat your way. Or when it doesn't go your way, you don't lose everything. That lived experience and reality leaves us, count myself a part of this, leaves us with an underdeveloped muscle of decentering ourselves or of sacrificing our wealth and security and prestige in order to change that structural reality. We as white folks need to deal with this reality, especially for those of who think of ourselves as good white folks, because the same spiritual rot that at its extreme becomes Christian nationalism makes us vulnerable, even in moderate doses, to the cooperation, collaboration, unwitted or intentional with the rise of the far right. Now here's the part where maybe you're expecting me to say, and here are the three steps we can take to combat Christian nationalism. The way that Gretchen has so eloquently these past few Sundays. I'm not gonna do that. I know. Instead, I'm gonna leave you with just a question. What of your life are you willing to risk and sacrifice to actively support the creation of a truly inclusive, equitable, and pluralistic society? What would you give up that hurts in order to ensure the end of white Christian hegemony? Will you give up your place in the center so that others may be allowed to live? South African sociologist Pierre Van de Ber looks at the future of America and the most probable outcome should Trump and his allies return to power. He defines it to look like this. It will be a parliamentary regime in which the exercise of power and suffrage is restricted, de facto and often de jure, to the dominant group, which understates itself it understands itself as a superior race or culture, and in which other races and subcultures are subjected to varying degrees of legal discrimination and violent subjugation. Let's call it Jim Crow 2.0. It's not a foregone conclusion. There are many sources of resistance and resilience within our country, the way power is not concentrated the diversity of coalitions that can be brought together. It is not a foregone conclusion. But the question remains, what from your life are you willing to risk and sacrifice to actively support the creation of a truly inclusive, equitable, and pluralistic society? Let this question animate and irritate, provoke and chide, remind and soothe, calling us closer and deeper to a love that is so courageous that it might transform us through our risk, so that when we sing out that your people are my people, we truly and deeply mean it. Amen. And bless it. So that's not a simple question. It's not a tiny shift, that question. But it is an important one. And though the tiny shift I'm going to invite you to play out 
this next week is to notice. When are you experienced an irritation because you're decentered? And what can you do about it? I want to hear your stories. You can reach out at sean at foothillsuu.org. I'd love to hear your experiences. Thanks for listening.